People look far, people look close, people look severe and a little morose. People look down, people look up, people looking down are a little abrupt. People looking down are a little abrupt. Raise up my binoculars and I see everything everywhere. I see detail of that, I'm sure, but I don't see me and that hurts the most. Hello and welcome to episode 1562 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I am doing okay. We have a preview-packed episode for everyone today. We will preview. get to that in just a moment. Wanted to provide a quick update about Sam, our co-host. Some of you have been wondering how he's been, as have we, and we've chatted with him this week. And the issue that he's been dealing with is migraines, somewhat severe migraines that are exacerbated by stress. And podcast recording was not helping with his attempts to manage that. And that's why he took some time off and is continuing to take some time off. He's figuring out how best to treat that and go about his business. So we are hoping for the best for him and we don't know exactly when he'll be back and don't want to put any pressure on him to be back, but he's hoping to be back as soon as possible. And of course we miss him and want to talk to him as soon as we can. Yeah. But we wanted to let everybody know he's he's okay. Yes. People, you know, this is one of the nice things about our our little community is that, you know, folks are thoughtful and they worry. So we want to allay your worries. Sam is okay. He's just taking care of business. As a yes. fellow migraine sufferer, I relate strongly. <laughs> yeah, I've been lucky to escape that particular plight, but it sounds yeah. quite unpleasant. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, I have sympathy for both of you, and Sam's seem to be quite disruptive. So yeah. I'm sorry to hear that and hope that that will not continue to be the case. So today we are doing two more team previews. This is our third to last season preview episode. Just two more episodes like this after today and four more teams. But today we've got a couple of good conversations. Later in the episode, we will be talking to Anthony Fennick of the Detroit Free Press about the Tigers. But first, we are talking about the New York Yankees with our pal Lindsay Adler of The Athletic, a true Yankees beat writer if there ever was one. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, guys. So I guess we'll start with what is now our standard opening question about baseball amid a pandemic. So how has testing gone thus far? What have the Yankees said? What concerns have the players expressed about playing under these conditions? And just on a personal level, how has camp been for you? And what is it like to be covering baseball again? My understanding is that testing for the Yankees has not necessarily been as chaotic as it has been for, you know, say the A's or Joey Gallo specifically. You know, I don't think they, it doesn't seem like they're going to be giving us updates every time tests come back late. But one thing, you know, that Aaron Boone said was that, you know, in a system where you have tests coming back about every 48 hours, like those everyone's already at risk. And, um, you know, when you receive those results, whether, you know, it's 48 hours after you send in the samples or 72 hours after that, all that is telling you is who was negative two or three days ago. Mm -hmm. So they seem to just be, you know, 
rolling with it. It sounds to me like, you know, the organization and everyone around the team has been really good about making sure everyone's doing the right thing, really staying really safe. So that's, um, that's a relief on a lot of levels. But for me, it's just been kind of bizarre. Like to some extent, it just feels like nothing even happened. You know, it just, to some extent, I'm just sitting back in the press box watching people stretch. Um, The difference (laughs) being that many of them are wearing masks and I'm watching them from binoculars and not speaking to them in person. Yeah. But, you know, it's just been nice to really be able to, you know, to the extent that I'm watching sim games and workouts still, you know, get back to talking to players more regularly, talking to the manager more regularly and, you know, at least be able to watch Garrett Cole pitch in a sim game or something like that after so many months of just, you know, a sitting and and wondering if it's going to come back. So yeah. Yeah. Can you walk us through the binocular camera phone <laughs> technique? Because we've seen the beat writer spring training photo return for summer camp with a vengeance here. But instead of the very hazy, foggy, faraway pictures that we normally get, we're now getting clear pictures, but through binoculars. So the, the beat writers are having to learn new tricks here to keep the field pics coming from far away. Yeah, I don't know. I I ordered some binoculars from B&H, a camera and electronics store. And I was like, well, okay, I don't want to get the $10 ones. I don't want to get $50 ones. So I'll just get these, you know, seemingly basic $30 ones. And they're like, they're like bird watching intense. And (laughs) I don't know how anyone else is like taking photos through their binoculars, because every time I hold my phone up to it, it just... I don't know if I just don't know how to use binoculars, but it's like the whole thing for me because my eyesight is pretty bad from staring at screens all the time. So like I'm having to take my glasses off, put my binoculars back on. But then if I need to see the whole field quickly, I have to put the binoculars down and put my glasses back on. And then, you know, if I like put the binoculars to my face with my glasses on, it doesn't work. And I'm like, you know, I must look really cool, really cool. Just like, <laughs> just like, like double fisting binoculars and my like nerd glasses back and forth. <laughs> I need to get you a sort of rig set up kind of like the, the night vision specs in Jurassic Park that sit on your head and then you can put yes. the glasses in front of them, try to rejigger things a bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the st- the strange things about the Yankees, and obviously we don't want to think about the pandemic having benefited anyone because I'm sure that they would have liked to get a full season of Garrett Cole and (laughs) are cognizant of the effects that this has had on people away from baseball. But I think that if we had done this episode earlier in the spring, we would have had to have you come back for an injury update because they are one of the teams that is probably going to be healed the most as a result of the long layoffs. So maybe we can just take these kind of in order. Uh, If we had recorded this in March, there would have been a couple of of players, notable players, whose injury status would have been in question for for a normal opening day. So run us through, and let's just start, I guess, with Paxton, and then we can go through some of the position players. What is the latest and greatest on James Paxton, who was going to be out with back issues until May and is now presumably going to be ready for opening day? Yeah, James James Paxton looks good. He threw, you know, he threw to hitters few days ago I think it was about he sat down once or maybe twice and and he looked good it looked like he was at full strength he said he felt fine so 
yeah, you know, it's it's almost interesting in his case because I think, you know, if we can assume that he would have been really ready to come back by mid-May, you know, it just made it so that he didn't have to to rush at all. And then how about some of the position players? So we have Judge, we have Stanton, and then I would imagine that they're in a position to get Aaron Hicks back as well. Mm-hmm. So Judge looks good. Um, he says he's swinging without pain after they figured out the rib fracture and then unfortunately the collapsed lung during spring training. So he's, the Yankees have played two sim games through as of now, Thursday morning, I think it's Thursday. And he's been (laughs) in right field for both of them. He's, you know, looked good at the plate like every other hitter. I, I think he's still working on his timing, but he seems, he seems good to go. And then Stanton, Stanton says that he is on schedule to be ready for opening day as a designated hitter. He said actually that, you know, his calf strain that he suffered in March only recently started to really feel 100%. So he is hopeful that, you know, through time and kind of building up in this setting, he can play the outfield later in the season. But I don't think the Yankees were going to, you know, have him take much playing time out there anyway. So it seems like he's um, ready to go to DH. And then, yeah, Aaron Hicks looks good. Um, He's been, you know, doing outfield drills and everything. And it's like, dude, like, you know, at the end of last season, when he did get UCL surgery, we were like, hmm, maybe it was, maybe he should have just gotten it sooner instead of trying to play through it. And now none of that matters because he's very likely to be (laughs) ready for opening day. And then, of course, the Yankees reminded us that COVID is not the only injury concern that mm-hmm. that folks have to grapple with in this moment. We got an unfortunate reminder that pitchers can get injured just by doing pitching stuff. What's the latest on Tanaka, who was hit by – it was a Stanton comebacker over the weekend, right? Mm-hmm. Gosh, between Stanton and Judge, I don't know which I'd rather <laughs> like to experience less, but it, those are the two leaders in the clubhouse. Yeah, I don't know how anyone – faces. Stan James Paxton told us that comebacker was 112 miles an hour, but Tanaka is apparently doing very well. He's been at the park the last two or three days, and he's, Aaron Boone's told us he's been able to ride on the stationary bike. I think he said he did some work outside yesterday, and, you know, I guess the doctors are happy that when when he's elevating his heart rate, he's not feeling any of the initial concussion symptoms that he felt when he first took the hit. And Boone has said that um, the initial, quote, concussion-like symptoms he had basically dissipated before he was discharged from the hospital anyway. So, you know, we don't know what the timeline is. You know, I think everyone wants him to take the time he needs. But yeah, it, it seems like beyond what it looked like. He's doing pretty well, fortunately. So broader injury-related question. The Yankees let go of their director of strength and conditioning, Matt Krause, over the winter, and they hired Eric Cressy, who is something of a celebrity in that (sighs) field. So to what extent was that just, well, we just had a historic injury year, so we better do something different? And to what extent were they able to actually diagnose what went wrong last year if it was something about the process that went wrong as opposed to just historically terrible luck? You know, I would love to, you know, have reported more extensively on that, you know, but 
when it comes to player injuries and things along those lines, like they, they play it pretty close to the vest and I haven't really gotten a good read on it. You know, Cashman of course gave us that quote last year that they would investigate everything like CSI, the Bronx, you know, but I think a big thing is just that, you know, we saw so many soft tissue injuries and setbacks and whatnot. And, you know, I think it's really interesting timing that they have Cressy coming in this season, right as they're about to start a 60 game and potential postseason sprint when everyone is terrified about soft tissue injuries. So I think, you know, I don't know what we can really take from last year, but I think it will be really interesting to see, you know, how players hold up this season. Have you noticed anything different? Are the stretches that you're seeing from far away any different from the stretches you saw last spring? Or is there any real difference when it comes to training routines? Or I guess everything has been odd, obviously, for the past few months. But were you able to see anything in spring training that suggested that the process had been revamped in some way? (sighs) Spring, 500 years ago. (laughs) If there's anything specific that I did see, I think it might have been lost to time right now, but, Mm -hmm. you know, one of Krause's big things is having this on one of the backfields at the, at the Tampa facility, there's a hill. And like, if you look past the hill, you can see a very nice, like glittering sign for a strip club, making it all very perfectly Tampa. But, you know, his, one of Krause's big things was having players run on the hill and whatnot. And I don't think I saw that as much, but I got to be honest, when we're getting to the point where like, guys are just doing like 90 foot sprints that's when I usually try to like catch up on (laughs) what other teams around the league are doing Mm -hmm. so when we look at the Yankees player pool um, especially on the prospect side they went very heavy on pitching Um, Mm -hmm. when Eric Longenhagen wrote about their prospect pool for us at Fangraphs he noted that they might only have one full lineup of position players working out at the AAA facility at any given time Among this sea of uh, pitching prospects, do you have a sense of who we're likely to see debut this year? I would say Clark Schmidt, where the Yankees have a sim game tonight and Davey Garcia will pitch in that. So that could be cool. But, you know, Clark is he has the college experience. He's he's older and he's just looked really good. He looked really good in spring. He looked really good you know, in a sim game the other day. And I know that his spring performance and kind of the way he carried himself really just impressed a lot of people. I think it's impressed a lot of us. And so I think we'll see Clark Schmidt at some point. I think there's also a chance that we could see Davey as well. But, you know, I I know they want to make sure that they, um, you know, really get him the development before kind of exposing him to this level as well. Another change the Yankees made on the pitching side was going from Larry Rothschild to Matt Blake, the new pitching coach. They subtracted more than 30 years there. They went quite a bit younger, but also Blake is someone who has worked with Cressy before and doesn't have the more traditional high-level playing background that Rothschild did and has sort of embraced some of the, the newer player development methods. So was there dissatisfaction with Rothschild or was it just that they really liked Blake? And again, have you noticed any difference there? Yeah. So the biggest thing I noticed in spring was that they were, you know, doing bullpens and throwing on the 
off the mound on the main field in Tampa in front of Repsotos and cameras. And they had, they had a screen with the, you know, Edratronic set up behind it and everything like that. And there's just been a much bigger integration of technology. Some of the players, you know, this has really been their first time throwing in front of systems like that reliably. And I think, you know, I think they just wanted a little bit more cohesion throughout the organization, just in terms of like, you know, delivering information and kind of how that was processed. And so I think Matt is, you know, I think he's someone who they've really heard a lot of great things about. And like, I am personally a very big Larry fan and I'm excited every time like a photo of him pops up from someone like retweeting a Padres thing or whatever. But um, yeah, it's it's been a little bit different in terms of kind of how open they've been about their use of technology. And then another thing that I noticed that I think, I'm not sure if it's a Matt thing or if it's a Garrett Cole thing, but, you know, I noticed a lot of, a lot more players sitting and watching each other's bullpens and sim games during spring training as well. There was, you know, there would always be like, honestly, most of the major league pitching staff sitting behind a screen when someone was throwing a sim game. Do you have a sense of what the organization's approach to player development in a year like this is going to be? Obviously, they do have sort of a prospect-heavy pool in some respects, so the guys at the alternate site are going to get reps in, but for all of their prospects who were not selected to be in the player pool, what what are they trying to do to keep those guys on track from a developmental perspective? You know, I think it definitely gets really tough right now, but I know that during the shutdown, you know, coaches and just the player development staff. I know that they were keeping in touch with everyone, kind of making sure they had programs and things like that and trying to help them kind of figure out how to stay sharp and how to stay ready, you know, maybe while some of them do not have facilities like some of the major league guys do. And so I don't know. That's one of my big questions as well. And I think it's just like logistically a nightmare. And I think, you know, something that is really difficult is that, you know, if the minor league contraction is formalized and, you know, there's a standard basically size that a, that a minor league system can be, the Yankees will have to make, I think, 45 more player cuts. And so like, okay, they saw, they saw most of the players in their system for a week or two during spring, maybe. And so I don't know necessarily if you have to not just look at, you know, where you want guys to go, assuming, hoping everything is normal next year, but you have to make moves. I just, I just don't know how you can necessarily evaluate unless you have, unless you send everyone in the system, a you know, a rap soto or, you know, bat sensors or things like that. We should probably talk about Garrett Cole a little <laughs> bit. So At the trade deadline last year, Brian Cashman didn't make a move for a starter and was criticized for that at the time. And then the Yankees rotation didn't perform so well in the postseason. And a lot of people said, I told you so. And then Brian Cashman went out and splurged on on Garrett Cole. And so I guess you could say, oh, he learned his lesson and realized the error of his ways. But really, at the deadline last year, he said he didn't think there were any impact pitchers available or difference makers. And Garrett Cole is a difference maker, if anyone is. 
is. So do you think any of that was, oh, I, I guess it is good to have starting pitchers and renewed appreciation for that? Or is it just that, hey, Garrett Cole was available and he's the best pitcher in baseball? I think they were going to, they knew that Cole was was their winter. You know, they've, Cashman's called him his like white whale or whatever, but even even last summer, I remember after they drafted Jack Leiter, Al Leiter's son, who they expected to go to college instead, you know, their scouting director, Damon Oppenheimer said, look, you know, we see this as a gesture. We drafted Garrett Cole and we hope that it will help us come this winter. And so, you know, it's a very long game that they played with this, like a very, very long game. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, they tried to get him from, from Pittsburgh. And so I think the organization, you know, looked at some of the starters who were available last year at the deadline and just didn't really like what they would have had to give up to receive them. And I think Cashman's philosophy at this point is do not panic. So... They're so well positioned from a rotation perspective, assuming Tanaka could come back um, healthy with Pax in there. But the Yankees are also pretty stacked when it comes to the <laughs> bullpen. So I'm curious if there's been any conversation in camp so far, just keeping in mind that they have to keep these guys healthy for a sprint, that they're anticipating a long playoff run. Are we going to see any creative deployment of those starters or the bullpen? They obviously don't need to. Garrett Cole can just go every five days and everything's <laughs> fine. But they are sort of a fully operational Death Star in the way that they wanted to be going into this season, even if this season looks very different than what they anticipated. So is there going to be any you know, shenanigans when it comes to how these guys are deployed? Or are they going to play it pretty straight, do you think? I think right now they think they'll play it pretty straight. You know, the the thing that, you know, Matt Blake and Aaron Boone have said is like, we have our plans, but we'll have to see how things go. But as of right now, they're not looking at, you know, six-man rotation or anything like that, or at least they weren't, you know, before Tanaka was hit. And so the one thing I could see right now is like if, if they do begin the season with another empty spot in the rotation and it goes to a younger, less experienced player, you know, there, there could be some creativity there, but you know, a lot of those main guys who you see in their bullpen, they were really able to stay ready, stay sharp. I mean, Adam Adovino was throwing to the bullpen catcher off a mound in his backyard with Garrett Cole. And then later once New York state restrictions lifted, they were throwing at Yankee stadium. Zach Britton has his own like pitching lab at his house in Austin. Like Chad Green was able to go to a facility in Kentucky. Aroldis Chapman just looks ridiculously in shape. So I think a lot of the main guys who they would have leaned on anyway, they they were really able to have a good system during this. So I think it would be different if they had like come in and no one had been able to throw. So you know, I thought that early in the season, we would see starters come in and just throw like a couple innings. And then Garrett went out the other day in the in the first sim game and threw five innings and 67 pitches. So, you know, I'm going to stop talking about what I think will happen. And I guess we'll just, um, <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll see how, how the schedule and the situation shakes out. 
Domingo Herman will not be part of that pitching staff this season because he had 63 games left on his suspension. And hey, it's a 60-game season, so that's that. But we will see more of Jordan Montgomery, and I wonder what you think we will see out of him because we talked about Hicks and his comeback from Tommy John surgery just last October. Montgomery made it back last year from his own Tommy John surgery, but only got into a couple games, and it's now been three years since his really impressive rookie campaign. So is it expected that he can be close to what he was in 2017? Yeah, he looked good in spring. He was, I can't remember what his velocity was, but it was higher. You know, he's he's older. He has a better sense of how to take care of himself. I think he's learned a lot in the last few years. And so I think he's actually going into this in a pretty good position. And I spoke to him in April or something. And so he's another guy who was able to, you know, throw off a mound to, you know, a, I think a high school teammate, a friend. So he throws in the sim game tonight. I can't remember if Aaron Boone said, I think he said he'll maybe go two maybe three innings but you know if he looks anything like he did in spring like I think he's ready to go you know I don't think he's going out there with any limitations I don't really think he was in spring anyway and I think yeah I think he's ready to go and I think he's he looks like a guy who's kind of ready to be throwing harder than than he did before the surgery one of the guys last year who allowed uh, the Yankees to weather their terrifying spate of injuries and was a pleasant surprise, I think, in terms of how well he hit and contributed was Mike Talkman. What is the role that the team is envisioning for him this year, um, given that some of you know his contemporaries have returned from injury? And what are they sort of hoping for in terms of his um, next step forward? You know, it's just so... It's hard to gauge with the outfielders since the last time we saw them, like you said, like they were missing three, three regular outfielders. So I'm not necessarily sure. I mean, I don't know how they're going to get everyone playing time, like unless they can operate the season like a sim game and just have like 15 hitters. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. I think, you know, I know that they've said that they don't like I said before, they don't necessarily it didn't seem like they were really planning on having Stanton play the bulk of his time in the outfield anyway. So I think, you know, with Hicks back, like I think Talkman could get a lot of time in, in left field, but like, then when you look at left field, it's like, okay, you have Talkman, you have Brett Gardner, you have Clint Frazier, you have Miguel Andujar. Like there's probably like four different guys who I'm forgetting. So, but I think, you know, especially while Hicks is, you know, building back up and whatnot, being able to use him at both, you know, left and center, I think will be, will be good. And honestly, he's just a really valuable lefty bat, you know? Yeah. And I guess they face those sorts of decisions with a lot of players because they had so many guys come out of nowhere and have career years last year, as we talked to you about at the time, then they had to figure out, well, are these guys actually that good? Should we count on them? Do we even have a space for them? So Cameron Mabin, for instance, was one of those breakout guys and Yankees let him go and he's now back with the Tigers, the team we're talking about next. But then you also have guys who are still around like Talkman or like Gio Urshela and now 
know Andujar's back and it's like well did Andujar kind of lose his job lose his starting role because Urshela was so great or do you trust that Urshela will continue to be that great so it was really wonderful for the Yankees that all those guys stepped up the way that they did but that then creates some decisions and uncertainties about okay do we actually want the first stringers to supplant these guys or did they earn a larger role yeah you know during spring they said that you know geo has earned the right to have third base it's his job to lose basically and you know i think anduhar has been really good with like being willing to be flexible you know he um certainly looked good homering off of garrett cole the other day and again like you know like we said like the pandemic is not good, but when you have a guy returning from a shoulder injury and trying to try out some new defensive roles, you know, Andujar stayed in Tampa during the shutdown and was able to work out, I think he said at a friend's facility, but then I also believe at the Yankees complex when they were allowed to do so. So I've thought he's looked fine and left, you know, they were doing drills the other day and there was a you know, all that hopped off the wall that he played pretty well. So it it is really interesting. And it's like funny how quickly like these things can happen. Like a few weeks ago, I tried to project a roster, like a 50 player roster, and I did it entirely wrong. But in the process of taking my list of guys and, you know, putting them into the document by position and whatnot, I forgot Mike Ford which was seriously not intentional. And like, people got so mad at me. They're like, like, how dare you forget Mike Ford? And I'm like, I'm not trying to forget Mike Ford, but like a year ago, like you would not be yelling at me for like making a copy and paste error with Mike Ford. And I think that's just something that's so interesting. Like they have had so many of these guys, the Urshelas, the Fords, honestly, the Voight, the Talkman come in and like get an opportunity and produce enough to really kind of stick it out and you know they've really got an embarrassment of riches and I don't think they're sad to have too many guys for you know the amount of playing time they can provide but it's um it's really kind of wild honestly yeah well you can forget about Greg Bird at least I guess (laughs) the Greg Bird era in New York is over sadly good luck in Texas Greg I wish you well but the Clint Frazier era (laughs) is still going or trying to go so he's around he's presumably on the bench somewhere did they make much of an attempt to shop him around over the offseason do you know were they interested in doing that or did they still feel like there is somehow a role for him I'm not quite sure I know that they really value him I've again anything beyond like two weeks ago feels like it has been 700 years to me but I believe last year with some of the trade packages I believe part of the issue in terms of like what the Yankees felt that they would have to give up for starters who they weren't sure would really be impact players would have been you know Clint and maybe a few other players and so they they value him highly like Aaron Boone said he's been dealing with plantar fasciitis over the last couple months he said he's Clint is fine and they're just they're the ones choosing to slow play him but like I saw him take batting practice the other day and like I don't care what's up with his foot like he can still hit the bat speed is really really still there like it's funny to me that after seeing Clint play 
inconsistently, but enough over the last few years, I'd kind of become used to that bat speed and, and his hitting ability. But now after not seeing live baseball for three, nearly four months, like seeing him take BP, I'm like, whoa, like, <laughs> okay, yes, it's, it's still, it's still the same thing here. This is obviously a very strange season, but I think that the Yankees are, you know, one of the teams that we're sort of counting on to make us feel like baseball is normal because they should be good. They should have a long playoff run. They clearly wanted this year to be a year where things coalesced around Garrett Cole leading that rotation, this amazing surplus of great position players. A lot can happen in a 60-game season, but in terms of how the Yankees view themselves positioned competitively in an East that is you know, still quite competitive with the Rays and the Blue Jays potentially ascendant, even as Baltimore is Baltimore and the Red Sox are less good at baseball. How are they sort of viewing themselves positions this year? And does this year change anything, the format of it change anything about their expectations? How are the guys feeling about the legitimacy of this season? I'm curious what players think about the 60 game season and whether, you know, a ring this year would mean what it would to them in any other year. You know, during spring, they were really, really united in the idea of contending and getting that championship. And it was something Aaron Boone said. It was something every player said. It was something that I picked up on just in talking to players and people around the team. It was very, very real. And I think that that sentiment um, and that common goal very much still exists. I don't know necessarily what everyone thinks about like the value and legitimacy of a 60 game season I believe someone it may have been Garrett talked about like look like it's it's a 60 game season like we still want to we still want to win it but the thing that I think about when you know thinking and talking about the real common sentiment like you know let's do what we have to to win this year because there's a lot of guys in there who are tired of being sent home in mid-October is, you know, these guys have, these guys know they have something to play for. They know that there is, there is a path for them. It's why you see so many of the guys like Aaron Judge, other big name guys just openly expressing like how excited they were when the Yankees signed Garrett Cole. And I think honestly, one of the, the biggest values of that this season is like, they all know that if they want to have this be a, a full season, a contending season, you know, have them as a team make it to October intact. Like they need to be really serious about their health and safety and they need to hold each other accountable. And so when it comes to thinking about like, is the team I cover going to take this stuff seriously? I feel a little bit relieved for a lot of reasons, <laughs> knowing that they all feel that like this season is definitely something something that they are really motivated to to do well and to do right so you know i'm not rooting for anyone or anything that's not what i'm saying i'm just i just mean like from a point of view that i want everyone to be uh healthy and safe you know i think i think they all know that like they may have to make sacrifices in terms of not going to restaurants or what, whatever because they uh they are really looking at that championship now 
when you were actually in the clubhouse and, and around these guys every day, again, 500 years ago <laughs> in the spring, did you notice any difference because of the absence of C.C. Sabathia and whatever leadership and, and presence he provided? And what role does he have with the team now? Because I know that he wants to be involved and they want him to be involved. So he's a special advisor now. And he has been in stands for both sim games so far. And he, you know, was in the outfield with a lefty catcher glove on the other day while <laughs> while his teammates were shagging fly balls. I didn't necessarily notice, you know, a, a difference. It's It's definitely a bit of a different team. And I think I would have noticed it more had the regular season begun because in in the Yankees clubhouse, the lockers on either side of the door that goes to like the, the weight room and all of that on the left side, it's Brett Gardner and on the right side, it's CC Sabathia. So I think I would have noticed it more in that regard, but you know, Gardner is still there. He knows that, you know, he's the elder statesman. Now I, I think judge has really stepped up in terms of wanting to take on that leadership role. And you know, in terms of the pitching staff, like they all really gravitated to Garrett. And, you know, speaking of Jordan Montgomery, he was someone who I kind of saw him interacting with Garrett the way he interacted with CC. Like he and CC are really close. He really looks up to CC and I could see the same thing in Garrett. And so, you know, I, I think CC feels like they're in good hands and I think they have a pretty good idea of, um, in a sense, a succession plan, but he's definitely clearly still around. The organization really, really values his opinion. But I think right now, CeCe's enjoying being what he describes as just an employee. You mentioned Gardner, and much to my dismay and much to Dan Simborski's dismay, <laughs> Dan included him on his list of breakdown candidates for 2020 the other day. Really, who among us is not a breakdown candidate for 2020? But as much as I would like Gardner to be ageless, he is not. He is almost 37. He turns 37 next month. And Dan wrote that last season, Gardner focused on pulling the baseball and crushing fastballs, hitting more than a quarter of his career homers on fastballs last year alone. As he enters his late 30s without elite exit velocities, I'm skeptical that he'll continue to hold up as well as, say, Nelson Cruz has. And you wrote about that change in approach that Gardner made, so it was an intentional thing. Do you see it as kind of a compensating for declining skills or bat speed sort of thing, or was it just something that made sense anyway and could continue to benefit him? I think, so the sense I get is that it's, you know, very much philosophy of the current coaching staff. You know, I think Marcus Timms is someone who is really instilled in these guys, like it's okay to really focus on your A swing. And that's, you know, really what Gardner has said is, and I, and I think it's similar to kind of what Cameron Mabin was talking about as well. Like you just put your best swing on it and try to drive it. I think it's, I think it is hard to know what this season will look like for Brett, because, you know, I think he probably benefited from the, you know, super juiced ball last year. I think a lot of his power was legit, though. We don't know what the baseball is going to be like. But then, you know, like you said, he is in his later 30s, and he had an extra few months without having to play every day. So, you know, watching him in sim game the other day, like, 
the thing about Brett, like, is he still has his speed. You know, he, it was interesting to see him, you know, slug so many dingers last year, but, you know, he knows who he is. His, his game is, is consistent. He knows he's, you know, toward the end of his career, but yeah, he's, he's one who going into the season, I was really curious to see what his production looked like this year versus last year. And now with some more time to kind of, you know, like I said, not be playing nine innings every day. I'm curious to see what type of playing time he'll get in this sprint and, and really what he'll show for it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if he had another great season, though. All right. So I just wanted to ask you about two more guys. And much as you've been working on your binocular mechanics, <laughs> they've been working on their pitching and catching <laughs> mechanics. And these are two guys who are separated by 10 years in age, Jay Happ and Gary Sanchez. And you wrote about how Happ was trying to either go back in time with his mechanics or recapture the way they worked before. And Sanchez has worked with the Yankees' new catching coach, Tanner Swanson, who is the guy who is often credited with helping Mitch Garver become a better framer. And obviously Sanchez's defense has been divisive, to say the least, over (laughs) the years. So what did those guys do and how are they looking? So Jay really... He really worked his ass off this off season. He went in, I think, like two weeks after their season ended, and he asked for like a full, basically, analysis of of his mechanics and how he's using his body. And the thing that um, that the training staff and that their new director of pitching, Sam Breen, determined was basically that Jay's posture is just too good. You know, I think. You know, for as long as we've all watched Jay, you know, we're used to that very like upright, very like light, fluttery looking delivery. And so he, you know, really just worked on training himself to stay kind of over his back leg more, have his, I believe, knee over his toes a little bit more. I think he felt that he was kind of like collapsing toward the plate. So, you know, he seemed to feel really good. I know that he was still, you know, staying at it during the shutdown and you know Gary is Gary has looked good as well like Gary came back looking great he said he spent I think a few days in Tampa but then immediate but then very quickly decided to go back to the Dominican Republic because he knew he had a facility he could work at there and yeah I mean he had I don't even remember what it was he had some minor thing in spring so this is you know giving him time to get past that but Yeah, I think the thing with Gary and this new stance is not just that, like, it will help him with his framing because of the stance. I think, I think Gary's really taken a lot of the, like, criticism about his blocking to heart. And I think what we saw last year, if I remember correctly, was that, like, he really focused on his, on his blocking. And I, I think it's just very difficult, like, you know, every time a ball gets past him, knowing that he's just going to get hammered for it. And so, you know, I think he focused on blocking to the detriment of framing. But then when you have so many guys like Tanaka and Zach Britton, who really need that bottom, bottom part of the zone, like I think a big thing that Tanner has done is, you know, really come in with this philosophy that like, look, we we all wish that like you could have every element of catching and have them all work together perfectly, but you can't. But I think he's done a good job of 
saying this dance will help you with your blocking, but here's the value that, you know, framing and receiving can really have. And and I know that he's, you know, had a good relationship with Gary. I think he's been really supportive of him. And um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's another thing that I feel like I've been waiting like six months to see how it, how it works in practice. Yeah. So last spring on this podcast, you boldly predicted that the Yankees would win 105 games and you came close to nailing it. It would be even bolder to predict that they win 105 games this season. (laughs) But I want to ask two questions that we've been asking our guests in this resumed preview series, which is, A, how many games do you think they would have won over a 162-game season? So low-stakes prediction there. And then how many games do you think they'll win over the 60-game season? And it's kind of an interesting question with the Yankees specifically, because as we've talked about, they are maybe a better team over the course of this shortened season than they would have been over a full-length season. I mean, what do you do? Like, they were a 103-win team, despite having 700 guys go on the injured list, and then they added Garrett Cole. Like, (laughs) uh, do I just say 105 again? Like, okay, over a 162-game season, I think I would have just projected 105. Mm -hmm. And so for a 60-game season, I think I'm going to stick around then. I mean, someone said to me, like, it could be, you know, could be 28, it could be 48. And so I think... 37 38 is about you know what 103 is so Mm -hmm. i think i'm gonna go with that because i think in a season when you know they're they're improved and they're going into it healthier than they would have in the spring you know there's still so many things that could happen not just not just injuries in this time when everyone's concerned but you know there's a virus you know that that to me is a wild card so i think i'm gonna go with about 37 And by the way, looking beyond this year, do you know if they've talked at all to Judge or Sanchez about extensions? Both of those guys will be free agents after 2022. And in theory, you'd think that maybe this would have been a pretty good time to approach them coming off these injury-shortened years that they've had. I don't believe they have. And I believe during spring, DJ LeMayhew said they had not spoken to him about an extension either. And then Obviously, when everything got shut down, you basically have no idea what your personnel is going to look like once once you get a season back, if you get one at all. So, yeah, I would think that all three of those. But, yeah, Judge and Judge and Sanchez, I, I would think projecting out from here, like extension would be the way to go. Right. For for all parties. All right. Well, it is time for you to get to the park. So <laughs> grab your binoculars and work on your camera phone technique. And everyone can follow you on Twitter at Lindsay Adler and read you at The Athletic, which we recommend because Lindsay is great. Thank you, as always, for coming on. Thank you, guys. All right. We'll take a quick break now and we'll be back in just a moment with Anthony Fennick of the Detroit Free Press to talk about the Tigers. Oh, Tiger, you can't catch your back and it's time to talk about the Tigers. To do that, we are joined by Anthony Fennick of the Detroit Free Press. Hey, Anthony, how's it going? 
Good. How are you guys doing? Okay. So I know that just before we started speaking, you were filing a story on Daniel Norris, who said that he has or had tested positive for COVID-19. How else have the Tigers been affected so far, whether it's other players testing positive or testing problems in camp? Have they encountered any issues thus far? Well, it's been kind of a complicated situation because of the way that Major League Baseball has set things up and the Tigers have kind of really gone by the book with that. Norris was just, the you know, Norris came out today basically and said that he had had it, but the Tigers yesterday announced that they had individuals in the organization that had tested positive. And it, it, it puts reporters at least in a weird spot because, you know, it's not really in our nature to kind of like speculate about something sensitive like that. So we're mm-hmm. watching workouts and then we're saying, okay, we noticed that these two guys aren't here. But again, it's just kind of the the gray area that we're in now. We've seen about six or seven guys. Victor Reyes, the outfielder, showed up today. He was on paternity leave, so that was not COVID-related. But everything, I mean, from their end, outside of the players that haven't reported to camp yet, it seems like everything's going as expected. They haven't experienced the kind of delays in testing that other teams have had. What has the sort of atmosphere been like for them in camp? Are players um, concerned about whether the season is going to be played to completion? Are there any players who have uh, voiced their discomfort with the season resuming at all? Not really. And it's kind of a, it's hard to gauge because we're just talking to them, you know, over Zoom calls now, whereas we would, you know, usually be in the clubhouse and whatnot. I would say that generally the Tigers are a group of youngsters. I mean, they have some more veterans mixed in this season, but I think, I think pretty much everybody's just kind of excited to get back out there. It'll be interesting to see how how this kind of evolves as some of these players that have been away uh, start arriving to camp because I think at least in the, in the, you know, this is, we're going on about a week now into camp around baseball. And I think generally speaking over the past kind of 48 hours or so, we've kind of started to, to hear a sense of, you know, responsibility on players ends about, you know, we got to really kind of stick to our P's and Q's here to get through this as a team and whatnot. But no, we haven't heard anything really very outspoken in Tigers camp. It's just kind of been summer camp going through the motions now. We got into inter-squad games, which is finally good uh, after a few days of live BP. So everything in that regard seems to be kind of status quo. Yeah, so in that inter-squad game on Thursday, there was an exciting sight, which was Casey Mize striking out Miguel Cabrera on three pitches. At least the Casey Mize part of that was exciting. And there's been a lot of talk about how prominent a role he'll play this season and whether there's a, a place on the roster for some of the other exciting young pitching prospects the Tigers have. And Joe Sheehan recently proposed that the Tigers just play those guys, that they call up Matt Manning, Casey Mize, Tarek Skubal, even though those guys are not on the 40-man, even though you'd be starting their service time clocks, Joe said, well, it's a 60-game season. Anything can happen. Might as well make it entertaining. And who knows? Maybe they go on a run. Plus, those guys aren't going to be playing in the minors anyway, and you want them to get some kind of innings or development time. So... That always seemed a little bit far-fetched that a team would do that, but was there or is there any consideration of that? And what role do you think any of those players, but particularly Myers, will play in 2020, if any? 
I mean, I definitely think that there's there's a pocket of the front office that is, let's say, open to the idea of that. I don't think it's necessarily going to be starting all these guys at the gate. Now, remember, I mean, like you said, the service time and, you know, for me, an, an interesting part of it is the kind of herky-jerky nature of the 2020 season here. But it is kind of turning into a little bit of a perfect storm because when you talk about, you know, you might have potential you know, absences in the starting rotation with maybe guys, you know, throughout summer camp and whatnot. And then guys like Manning or Mize or Scooble could could step in. Um, I think that they'll be up at some point. I think that developmentally they're at a level where especially Mize, as we saw today, I mean, he he pretty much mowed through a, a pretty veteran lineup now with guys like, you know, Scope and Austin Romine, CJ Crone. And developmentally, as he said a few days ago, there's not much left in terms of, look, big league innings is the, the next benchmark. So I think that at some point, once the Tigers kind of figure out how to not risk an entire year of service time, I think those guys will be up. But also, there are five guys in the starting rotation, and I don't think they're necessarily going to slide right over for those guys. So it'll be interesting to see if they can get creative with, say, you know, piggybacking some starting pitchers, sort of create some more innings for the young guys, because I do think it is important developmentally. But I also don't think that this year is the Tigers' year. I, I still don't think that those offseason additions, and while they're very, you know, respectable veteran players, I still think that you look at the bullpen and it's kind of like, Oh, okay. What do we, you know? And I, I, I do think that I, I don't think this is their year. So, whereas I think that they will get their feet wet uh, this season in order to make a better run for, let's say, next next year, coming into next year, when a guy like say Spencer Torkelson uh, could help them out as well. I don't think it's just going to be out of the shoot and going for it because just because I, I, I don't think that they're that kind of team. One of the things that might open up some spots for those guys in the rotation are trades. I know that there has been uh, seemingly for the last season uh, speculation about Matt Boyd's future on the Tigers and whether he will find his way onto the trade market. Do you see them as sort of actively trying to sell any of those guys, whether it's Boyd or some of their veteran pieces that might play well for a couple of weeks and then be an interesting back of the rotation piece for contending teams? I don't really see it, especially in this in, in this year when we really, you know, how many real baseball trades are going to be made. I know there was one a few days ago, but it's going to be interesting to see with where the trade deadline's at and given the season 60-game year. I don't think I'm going to see a fit for the Tigers right now. And obviously a lot of things can change, but some teams came at them last summer with some strong offers and they pretty much... They pretty much stiff-armed him then, and I think that there's a very good sense. I mean, it's, it's exciting at summer camp because you have all the top starting pitching prospects. You have guys like Torkelson and Riley Green, and you can really see something happening here, okay? And I think Boyd is a part of that. Now, whether that's going to be through with a contract extension, I wouldn't expect that at this time, but I think that they're going to kind of ride this out for now because at this point next season – we could be talking about a whole different ball game if, let's say, a guy like Torkelson debuts and the Tigers are five, six games over 500 at this point. It could be a much different thing. So I don't necessarily think that they're in the same position as they were last season. So at this point, I wouldn't really expect any kind of fireworks with Matt Boyd, especially in this kind of weird year for the trade deadline. 
We've talked a lot about Torkelson already, so might as well just ask a question about him. What have your impressions of him been just as a presence, as a personality, and what made the Tigers so enamored of him? Was there any consideration of anyone else taken with the the top pick in the draft, or was he always their guy? I don't think so. I think he was always their guy, and I think they are you know, a little bit fortunate that a player of his caliber was available for them in that fashion because you never know year to year how the draft's going to shake out and what kind of players are going to be available but this is exactly the kind of guy that they needed a middle of the order bat and look we haven't really talked to him that much but we saw him take batting practice uh, a few days ago and he's obviously taken a couple at bats in the in the inner squad games but i i think what really stood out to me besides the power and obviously he is really good power but i i think that he's more of a hitter than maybe people give him credit for they're trying him out at third base right now but i guess first base which is where he played throughout his career at arizona state that could be a nice fallback option because the tigers don't have any first base prospects in the future but regardless where he plays defensively it's just the bat and they are so power starved throughout their organization you know about all the top pitching prospects but offensively the the impact just isn't there and a guy like Torkelson who is considered a very advanced hitter for his age I mean that he's not even 21 yet so you put him in if he could advance to to catch up the, with the with the arms with the Mises Manning Scoobles of the world I think the Tigers should be in a very very good position especially since they have another kid named Riley Green so it it, it almost guys it's it's been surprising to me how quickly it's kind of turned and I do think it, it it's advantageous because they only do have really 60 more games of the rebuild because I expect coming into spring training next season it's going to be a much different story with these guys not talking about service time. We're gonna we're, we we could be talking about how you know they had five or six really good starts in tw- in twenty twenty, and now they're starting a rookie of the year campaign the next season. So from from that perspective, it's definitely it's definitely been an impact for Torkelson. I'm curious how the guys who are not in the sixty man player pool are being handled in terms of player development. So what is the Tigers' approach to their minor leaguers who are obviously going to be without a season and might not have the benefit of being at the alternate site while the big league club tries to sort out this weird year? Well, I think obviously they're gonna have that the uh, the taxi squad break off to to Toledo at some point. But I think a lot of this is still up in the air, especially with, you know, the, them training. And it's it's funny because I know people have commented before, but when Major League Baseball was talking about these plans at the start, it was like Arizona, Texas, Florida. And now all of them are getting hit really hard by the virus. So I think a lot of that is really up in the air right now. And like across Major League Baseball, they've pretty much had a lot of these minor leaguers kind of doing their thing on their own. I know that they've committed to paying their minor leaguers through the end of the season and I believe beyond. But yeah, I think it's something that's really up in the air from the Tigers' perspective at this point. Have they really modernized their player development system? I I know that they've made some efforts there and maybe they're kind of below the surface because the coaching staff is still sort of an older school staff, at least in terms of the backgrounds of the people on it. I don't know how their thinking has evolved, but have there been any clear and obvious improvements or philosophical changes there? Yeah, for sure. I'd say, I mean, they caught up. I mean, I and I don't want to say they've caught up because with with the nature of analytics, everything keeps evolving. So there's no real catching up. But they've taken a lot of 
big strides. They've put in a, they've, they've put general manager LV, let's put a lot of resources into the analytics side. But I think that they're in a position, and I think a lot of teams in baseball are in a position too, and teams that may be more experienced in analytics are starting to swing the curve in the other direction and t- try to figure out the perfect balance. And I do think at times the Tigers may be still kind of trying to figure out what that perfect balance is. Because as you said, there's a very stark contrast in terms of the uh, the amount of advancements they've made in recent years and the makeup of their front office, which is largely scouting, scouting based. I think that they made a couple of really key moves in the offseason, adding pretty much a director of player development position on, on the hitting side and also the pitching side. I think those those areas both needed to be addressed. So I think that they've done a good job in that sense. But again, I think it's just about finding the perfect balance because the the, the Tigers' next wave, it, a lot goes into the win curve and they're trying to get these guys in the younger, in the minor leagues. And I know that there's not a season this, this year, but they're trying to get them kind of up to speed before they get up to Detroit so they can kind of continue that program growing. And I know from both sides, I mean, it is a very quote unquote old school coaching staff, but the kind of guys that they have on that staff have really learned a lot with the analytics. And, you know, I, I think the battle between kind of scouting and analytics sometimes gets misconstrued because the the old school guys are always kind of willing to learn more. And, you know, some of the really, really out there numbers, you just have to find a way to process that and put it in a way that uh, they can best utilize in their teaching. But I think the Tigers have done a really good job of that. I think the, if I'm not mistaken, the other day, Michael Fulmer threw his first pitches since, what, 2018 um, as part of an interest squad for the Tigers. How did he look and what are their expectations for him this year? He looked really good. I mean, just, I, I guess for me, for me, from my, my, my vantage point, which look, in spring training, we used to be able to like be up close and personal with these guys on the backfields. And now we're kind of watching from the stands. But in that bullpen session, kind of off the mound, he looked good. But what stood out to me most with Fulmer's is kind of when he took his practice uniform off and he had like a cutoff workout shirt on and he his arm looks re- looked really cut up and and that that's a difference from the past his body is in really good shape but I think the time away kind of forced him to make changes with his appetite and obviously he had a he had a kid and it, it was kind of a silver lining in terms of the timing and how that worked out but I think he's done a very very impressive job of getting his body in shape and I think that when you start seeing that I I, I talked about kind of the ins- excitement in camp but when you you feel it because you see a guy like Casey Mize throwing a bullpen session and then right next to him is Franklin Perez who was once a top prospect and he's he's been injured a lot but still got a lot of potential then you see Fulmer like that well Fulmer is going to be a guy that he could perhaps break camp with the way that you know he's at in his development he's cleared for baseball activities they're going to still have to try to find innings for him but the Tigers have a lot of pitching coming and that's not even to mention a guy like Daniel Norris or Spencer Turnbull who in a 60 game season these guys could potentially put together some consistency and perhaps be tradable assets in the offseason and there's just a lot of the pitching and we haven't talked about Alex Faido and they have a lot of pitching coming and I know it's starting pitching and I know it's risky but when you look at it the Tigers have a lot of options and They've really looked at that as a surplus, and it could be paying dividends real soon. So I think Fulmer's looked re- really good, and he he's going to be a really intriguing option where he kind of ends up at the end of the season. 
Yeah, was that intentional? Was that a philosophical decision that they wanted to really stockpile pitching prospects? Because you see some teams have one philosophy, which is, well, pitchers get hurt and it's hard to develop them and it's hard to project them. So we'll get as many pitchers as possible and then it'll just be attrition, but we'll still have some left over. Then other teams go in the other direction and say, well, it's hard to bet on pitchers, so we'll just get position players because we can count on them more. And if we have a lot of those, then we could always trade them for pitchers. That's kind of the the Cubs approach. So was that something the Tigers set out to do, or is that just sort of how it worked out? And is getting guys like Torkelson and Riley Green kind of trying to balance the scales a little bit? I think it was something that they set out to do. It was a strategy. But with the way that the chips fell, so to speak, it it went a little bit more in that direction, if that makes any sense. Because I think, you know, around the time that they were picking high for Mize, you know, they they gave serious consideration to Jared Kalenic. And at that point, it was kind of like if there was a player like like Torkelson that was a little bit safer with that number one overall pick that season – with that kind of profile, perhaps the Tigers would have went that direction to further balance their system out. So when they go with Mize there, well, that you know that makes it a little bit more pitching heavy. And then obviously later in the draft, they find a, a trick Scooble. So it's so so that's kind of how that comes about. But I think they, they've done a good job at least in the last two drafts of trying to balance the system out because it was there was a point where a couple of years ago you're like, wow, there is really not much offensively. But to the Tigers' credit. In going this direction with this strategy, obviously, you know, the attrition was starting pitching, but I think they're also looking at it as starting pitchers, generally speaking, are some of the, you know, the most high priced free agents out there. And they're trying to kind of balance that from a, from a payroll perspective. And quite frankly, they've done a very, they've done a very good job over the years in terms of developing starting pitching. So that's kind of been in their wheelhouse. But yeah, when you, when you, when you compare it, at least recently before Torkelson came aboard before Riley Green came aboard because Riley Green, he's really, he's really impressed too. I mean, he kind of, he's got a big league body already and he's got a really nice left-handed swing. Before they came up, you're trying to compare them to the other rebuilding teams and it's like, wow, well, the Astros, you know, they did it on the diamond. The, the Cubs did it on the diamond. The Royals kind of did it a whole different way with the bullpen. So it'll be interesting to see because, you know, the injuries are going to come. They're inevitable, but it'll be interesting to see how they kind of can make it through on that regard because they do have a very, very impressive crop of starting pitching from, from the majors to the minors. This is a wildly premature question, so I'm going to preface it by saying that this team is going to be in a fairly advantageous payroll situation next year with this great crop of young pitchers coming up and Spencer Torkelson. 60 games is whatever. I think that uh, it sounds like they're pretty realistic about what this season both means and what their chances are of contending, but do you see them as perhaps surprise buyers this winter as they are looking ahead to 2021? I imagine that That's going to depend on any number of different factors, including how much baseball we actually get to play this year. But are they looking at that as their real sort of start to their next window of contention? Yeah, I would say so. But I don't know if they're just going to kind of open the piggy bank up this next offseason. I think they might start getting really aggressive the season after that. And by really aggressive, I don't think it's going to be really aggressive like the days of the past with Mike Illich. I think it's going to be more of a a reasonable kind of 
kind of payroll increase. It's it's all going to come down to the fit with with free agency because that's kind of what they want to do is they want to plug holes. And then if there's an opportunity to get like one of those, you know, special young players, and I'm not talking about like a Mookie Betts or a Bryce Harper kind of deal, Mike Trout, but a player that they think could be a difference maker. I certainly think they they would entertain doing that this offseason based on how this year goes because I think when you talk about the 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 starting pitchers and them coming up, well, if say a couple of them make their debut, let's say three of them make their debut and they're pretty successful, well, they're going to have a little bit more of a a knowledge base of what they're going to get next season in terms of how they acclimated themselves in the, in the big leagues this year. Therefore, they'll probably say, okay, we can be a little bit more aggressive in this regard. I definitely think that they're chomping at the bit to be aggressive because, I mean, it's been a long three years. I mean, there's been a lot of losing and, you know, it hasn't really been pretty. I mean, 114 losses is is... Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think that they're ready to get going. I don't think it's going to be as much as, you know, starting a Casey Mize and Matt Manning out of the out of the gate this season. But it could be enough to make a sizable free agent buy in the offseason. I just think they're more likely to do it a season after that because then you're really starting to get into the wheelhouse where perhaps you see like a Riley Green and the wave starts getting bigger in terms of like winning big. Yeah, the veterans that they did import this past offseason, Cameron Mabin and Ivan Nova and Jonathan Scope and Zach Godley, etc., was that really a reaction to the 114 losses? I mean, they got Torkelson, right? They beat out the Orioles in what some people were calling tanking for Torkelson. But yes. was that just so unpleasant to watch it as a, a spectator experience? And for the people on the team and running the team that they just figured, okay, we don't want to be quite that bad again. We better get some respectable players in here. Yeah, yeah, I think it was I think it was 95% that. I mean, I just don't think they could stomach another season like it. I don't think that it was fair to the coaching staff. Yeah, they were going to plug as many spots as they could and they did it with guys who again, like we talk about their minor league system, their major league system, they had no power last year. Right. Like absolutely zero power and get CJ guys like CJ Crone, <laughs> yeah. Jonathan Scope, even even Austin Romine. I mean, these guys have a little bit of pop, so that's what they really wanted to address because they were a pretty punchless group last season. Yeah. I wanted to ask about Miguel Cabrera because he was part of that problem. At this stage in his career, is there hope for some sort of bounce back or is it mostly about maintaining and, and not falling farther than he has? Yeah, I think there's definitely hope, and I would actually kind of expect it. I know we talk about this every year, but after seeing him, I I, I went and watched him at a local batting cage like a couple of days before that they before they re- reported, and he looks great. And I think that there were some questions of whether or not he would, you know, keep up his great shape from March to July, let's say, because I mean, three months in baseball time is like almost an entire off season, and I think that at least since I've been covering the team. In 2015, this is the best like Miguel Cabrera mind and body wise that I've seen. And it's kind of hands down. And when I say that, yeah, we say this every year, it's because, you know, I think he comes to camp every year in good shape. But it's kind of it's compared against the way he looked at the end of the season. And let's not forget that Miguel Cabrera has played through like a lot of injuries in his career, like stuff that a lot of stuff. And there's also in terms of his age, 36, 37 years old. So that's why it's like, okay, he looks pretty good. But looking at him now, like this is way, way different than any of those seasons. And I think mentally, when you put guys like 
scope and crone and role mining like veterans around him don't forget about cameron maven on the team i think that he's going to pay pretty big dividends when you put those guys around cabrera i think it, it makes him happier because the team's going to be more competitive but also i think that after expecting him to turn the corner every single season i think I think he might have been a little bit embarrassed last year. And I think he's kind of sick of just sitting at that level because he knows how good he is. And I don't think people should forget that because we are talking about, you know, arguably the the greatest right-handed hitter of like this generation. And I mean, the guy won the triple crown. And I do think that he is not going to be hitting, you know, 30, 35 home runs, maybe not even 25 home runs anymore, but Miguel Cabrera is going to get his hits. And it would not shock me at all if he came out and, you know, even challenged for like a bad adding title in 2020 because he's that good of a hitter and I, I think he's going to age much the way that kind of Maglia Ardonez did in his career. So hope, yeah, I mean, the Tigers are hoping, but kind of after seeing him in the way that he's been in early in camp, you're, you're, you're almost expecting it at this point. So this is only a tangentially Tigers-related question, but one of the things we do on this show is dissect Scott Boris analogies, and you gave us some material uh, last month when (laughs) you talked to Boris about the Tigers' rebuild and how they should spend in free agency, preferably on Boris clients, I assume. And the kicker on that article was it's like flowers in a vase. The flowers are just going to fall on the ground if you don't have the vase to put them in. That's what free agency is. It's the vase of championships. Thank you very much for soliciting that quote from the brain of Scott Boris. We talked about that for quite a while and tried to make sense of it in our heads. What did you think when you heard it straight from the agent's mouth, when you heard free agency is the the phase of championships and you're transcribing that after the fact? All I can say is it sounded as beautiful as you would have expected. (laughs) Out of the blue, just one personally... No, it's it's always interesting, you know, when everybody kind of crowds around Scott at the general manager's meetings, at the winter meetings, and it's just like a whole media whore on its own. But uh, yeah, he has he has his way of coming up with these these analogies, doesn't he? <laughs> Playoff Playoffville might have been my favorite though, and I think that was from a couple years ago. That's when the train started rolling. I really liked Playoff. <laughs> And it sounded off the cuff to you. I assume he did not come in with phase of championships as a prepared line. I hope he didn't. (laughs) No, it wasn't. No, yeah, that was somewhere halfway through, let's say. (laughs) But I knew it when I could hear it. I I knew it when I heard it. (laughs) I wonder if he knows how much time we have spent dissecting his weird analogies on this podcast. (laughs) I feel like he's trolling us at this point, but really, he's just providing us with content, so I can't complain. Uh, On that topic of getting quotes from people, you wrote a really interesting essay, I think, for the BP Annual this year. It was ostensibly the Tigers essay, although it was only kind of about the Tigers. It was sort of about the friction that you've had in clubhouses with Justin Verlander, but also just about the nature of the job and trading information and quid pro quos. And it was eye-opening for me, even as a writer, because I'm not a newsbreaker and I'm not covering a particular team or particular players, so I I don't have to do all that much of that, but it seems to be a a reality for a lot of people covering baseball, and I wonder if for our listeners who haven't read that essay, you could pull back the curtain a little and and just kind of coach people on how to read things from baseball media members, whether it's tweets or stories, how the, the sausage gets made, essentially. Well, essentially, it's interesting because I think the players, the, the easiest way to kind of describe it to you is that, like, I think the players started getting a whiff of this and seeing how the sausage was made 
during the labor negotiations recently, in recent weeks, because they, they're seeing where the scoops are coming from. And essentially, I mean, when you have a, you know, a relationship with any kind of source, whether it be a front office member, an agent, a player, anybody, it's kind of like, hey, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And that's how a relationship is built. And there's there's trust and there's certain things that potentially, you know, you, you keep off the record for this reason, for that reason. But it's all about kind of building a relationship. And um, again, I thought it was interesting in, in the labor negotiations because you see kind of, at least from this perspective and living in the bubble, because you understand like when you look at, let's say, a transaction, okay, any single transaction and you say, okay, well, what are the steps for that transaction? Where does that information come from? Okay. And how could that play into the situation with the, the labor agreements in terms of what side wants to get what certain message out? And I think it is very fascinating because it's not only in sports, but it's also in politics and it's just kind of, it's the media in general, but it it is, it's a, you know, and I think that some reporters everybody has like let's say a different flavor of it on how they deal with it but it is we live in a very gray area and again i think you can even go back to i think you can even go back to right here what like like to to bring it all full circle at the beginning we're talking about the the covid and how we announce how major league baseball some teams are announcing you know tests and not and it's all subject to consent from the player okay but there were teams who were finding different ways about it. When reporters are asking the manager, they're, they're confirming that that player was absent, but not saying any kind of reason. Well, that, that puts us kind of in a weird position because we have, you know, there are ways to get information and relationships and you don't really want to speculate because what if, like I said, Victor Reyes was out on paternity leave? Well, if we have, hey, seven Tigers are missing from camp. At this time, everybody's going to say essentially like, okay, well, all those players tested positive for COVID when really we don't know some of the the reasons why. Mm -hmm. So it is kind of fascinating when you dig deep into it. And it's like when you're looking at, you know, this situation versus that situation and how to get information, it is, yeah, it's just a pretty much a juggling act in terms of like relationships and whatnot. So to circle back to the 2020 team for one last question before we ask you for a record prediction, we've talked about some of the top prospects who might make an appearance. We've talked about some of the offseason acquisitions, talked about Fulmer coming back from injury. Is there anyone who's a holdover from the 47 win team that could take some sort of leap this year or that you're excited to see or interested to see what they do? Because that was, I think, part of the depressing experience of watching those Tigers was not only are they bad right now, but how many of these guys are going to be on the next good Tigers team? How many of them have a real future? So is there anyone who's coming back who's not a huge name that you think maybe has some more in the tank than they've shown thus far? Yeah, I'd say one guy, Jacoby Jones. Mm -hmm. He's a guy that his physical tools have just been off the charts, and he's just never been able to put it together. And the and, and when I say he's just never, not been able to put it together, yeah, there's been a couple of injuries, but for the most part, he hasn't had a handle on really – 
a plate approach, okay? And he hasn't really found himself at the plate, let's say. You know, he's got power, but he's not a power hitter. He's not a singles hitter either. He's more of a guy, he needs to focus on getting on base. I think if this, Jacoby Jones, he's a guy that if he can get on base with the kind of defensive ability he brings to the table, and he's one of the best defensive center builders in the American League, if he gets on base, he he creates havoc on the bases, and I think he's going to be a much much more, let's say, dynamic player because he has all the physical tools. He just needs a more mature plate approach and he needs to see the ball better at the plate. And he, he needs not to chase pitches because once they get the book out on you that you're chasing everything, it's really, it's hard to to kind of close it. So he, he needs to be more patient at the plate and he needs to look at the walk as his friend because the more he gets on base, the more productive his player is going to be, obviously, but especially in his sense because... I think he's got he's got pretty good speed and he's got a lot of athletic ability that that can be put to use if he gets on base. All right, so we've been wrapping up by inflicting these predictions on our guests. So two things we want to know: how many games would the Tigers have won in an alternate universe where we have a better response to the pandemic and we actually get a full baseball season in? So 162 game schedule. How many games would these Tigers have won? And given the 60 game schedule that we have now or hope to have, how many games do you foresee them winning this year? See, this is such a tough question because you're making me do. Re- reverse math in the Tigers <laughs> yes. because the way that we that I've I've been trained to think of it for the last three years is how many losses are they going to have? <laughs> so give us that I'd, too. Oh, I can, Anthony. I, I'd I say in a 162-game season, they would have went 70 and 92. Okay. That's 162, right? That'd be pretty good after 47. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And then in a 60-game season, see, I, I'm still... I'm still trying to figure out what is going to be like the best record and worst record. Mm-hmm. But let's say 25 and 35. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 70 win pace over a full season would be like a 26 win pace over 60. So it's about right, I suppose. <laughs> yeah. So okay. let's hope we can get all of those 60 in now. Yes. We hope that too. All right, so you can find Anthony on Twitter at his name, Anthony Fennec, F-E-N-E-C-H, and you can find his writing about the Tigers all season long, however long the season is, at the Detroit Free Press. Thank you very much, Anthony. Hey, thanks a lot, guys. It was a lot of fun. Okay, that will do it for today. By the way, I want to wish Williams Astadio well. We didn't mention him by name in our previous episode when we talked about players testing positive and some of the testing issues that teams have encountered, but Williams is one of the many players who have tested positive. And of course, that news cut us to the quick. It was reported that he is asymptomatic and has been placed in quarantine. So we hope all players who have contracted COVID-19 or will contract COVID-19 will make quick recoveries, but Williams is near and dear to our hearts, so we wanted to send a special Get Well Williams message to him. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already done so. They've signed up and pledged their monthly support to help keep the podcast going and get themselves access to some perks. Sam Klein, Tyler Baber, Adam Crow, Liz Pinella, and Doug Graham. Thanks to all of you. 
You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and other podcast platforms. If you like the show, tell the world. Leave an iTunes review. You can contact me and Meg and Sam via email at podcast.fangrass.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you are a supporter. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. We will be back with one more non-season preview episode before the end of the week, so we will talk to you then. Who is a saint?